my first year teaching, I went back to New Jersey. Like I said before, all of my friends were truck drivers, longshoremen, blue-collar workers. And I told them, I said, I am making so much money, I can't spend it all. This is December 1966. So how much are you make? And I went, I'm clearing a hundred a week. Now, in Manhattan Beach, I had a three-bedroom house, two blocks from the ocean with an ocean view, with two roommates, total rent, $150. Welcome to Diggs Influencer Podcast, the Titans of Real Estate, the show that provides direct access to the real estate industry's top movers and shakers as they share invaluable insight on how to best navigate and succeed in any market. I'm your host, Warren Dow, founder and CEO of M3 Media and publisher of Diggs Magazine. In this episode, John, Vince, and Gio, better known in the South Bay as the Altamira Real Estate Group. Thank you to our show sponsor, Bo Concept. Today, we welcome to the Diggs Influencer Podcast, a South Bay real estate institution and powerhouse team and family, John, Vince, and Gio, better known in the South Bay as the Altamira Real Estate Group. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Warren. So since there's four of us on audio, why don't we start by with you guys introducing yourself to our listeners individually so they have a sense of who you are, what you sound like. Okay, my name is Gio Altamira. This is his younger brother, Vince Altamira. And this is the dad, John Altamira. All right, so what a great story this is. And John, we have to start with you, of course. First generation Italian from Jersey. Tell us Hoboken. Ab- okay, so tell us about your family growing up. We want to hear it. My dad was a European immigrant from Italy, came to America in 1919 when he was 17 years old. I'm the youngest of five. I had two brothers and two sisters. My mom was born in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Her mom and dad were born in Naples. I grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, which when I grew up was a very tough waterfront town, a mile square, 62,000 people. 240 bars. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, yeah, it was, it was a great childhood, great place to live. It was fun, predominantly Italian, very, very ethnic. Italian, black, Puerto Rican, Irish, some German, some Jewish. But it was very, very ethnic. But it was a type of town where everyone, everyone knew each other and you knew what to do, what not to do. There were rules, and, and most people abided by those rules. I then went to University of Oklahoma and Northwestern State University, where I played basketball, went back to OU and got my master's, moved out to California, 1967, taught school. I was a phys ed teacher and a basketball coach at Hoover High School in Glendale, and discovered Manhattan Beach in 1967 and moved here in 1967. So I've lived continuously in Manhattan for, well, I lived a few years in Hermosa, but for 52 years, predominantly in Manhattan Beach. All right. So let's go back though to, let's go back to Jersey, John. Come on. Give us some stories like when you were young, what kind of trouble did you get into? Well, (laughs) you got to remember in the fifties, I was born in 1943. So in the 50s, when I was in school, the Hoboken waterfront 
was, well, there was a movie on the waterfront and that with Marlon Brando, and that was filmed in Hoboken. And uh, we used to go there and watch it, actually, from school, just cut school, go over there. Our school, Demarest High School, one building, no play area, no outside area, one gym. It was totally different than what you have now in, in any of the schools. The waterfront was very tough. I had two older brothers, and uh, I was not allowed to go to the waterfront until I was at least a sophomore, junior in high school, because it was that tough. Every, wow. every night there was something. It, it was all bars, Army, Navy surplus stores, hawk shops, you know, a lot of Navy guys and a lot of shipyards. And it was just an area where, you know, you just didn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Our high school, Demers High School, like I said, one building, a basketball gym, had no underneath the basket. You couldn't drive underneath the basket. You know, there was seats just on the side and then around the top. And, and very rarely did teams come to Hoboken and win. As a matter of fact, our arch rival, St. Michael's, we had to play them in the afternoon with only the players, the refs, and the cheerleaders. No fans were allowed because there was always riots breaking out. You know, it was that, it was that, kind, of, it was that kind of environment. I tell you, it was a great place to grow up and that you had very strong family structures and there was no racial tensions, which was amazing. There was yeah. no racial tensions. My best friends are Puerto Rican and African-American, Irish. We, we just all got along. And so that, that was what I really enjoyed. And it was great fun. It was great fun. So what did you want to be when, when you grew up, when, when you were young? What do you think? I actually thought I, I could play baseball. I loved baseball, New York Giants fan. Then I thought that once I got to college and I realized, wow, <laughs> I just wasn't big enough. Then I thought, you know, I'd love to stay in Oklahoma. I really loved Oklahoma. It was, it was such a different change of pace from New Jersey. Totally different. People were friendly just to be friendly. You know, you just things you don't think about and <laughs> see about. I'll tell you a funny story. Everyone in New Jersey in Hoboken is ethnic. So I would ask one of my friends at Oklahoma, i say, hey, uh, what are you? He goes, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, like, where are you from? Well, I'm from Oklahoma. No, no, well, where are your parents from? Well, well, they're from Kansas. Okay, where are their parents from? Well, they're from Arkansas. And it was like no one was from out of the United States. Yeah. Everyone was from the Southwest. Yeah. And it took me a while to understand, wow, there's, there's no ethnic people. Everybody was... They were yeah. white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And it took a while to adjust to that. But it was the type of place where you can make friends easily. And I really enjoyed my time there. Very, very much so. Very cool. So obviously you, you touched on how important family structure was and is. So let's get into the family, Altamira family. So we have Gio and we have Vince. And John, you're married to wife, Kathy, and you guys have four children, right? Yes. My daughter, Brianna owns a clothing store in Manhattan Beach called Boulevard. And my youngest daughter lives in Florida. She played volleyball at, at Miracosta and at USC and also went to uh, the Cordon Bleu School and now lives in Florida with her boyfriend and their family owns a uh, Montessori preschool. So SC runs in the family? Yes. It runs in the family. Well, actually, first two or four start, it was Ohio State and then... He transferred to USC. Yeah, so I played volleyball in high school in AAU, and I had a few schools for scholarship offers, and I wanted to go to SC, but I wasn't, quote-unquote, big enough. 
So you got to give yourself more credit, though. You were weren't you a national champion in high school? Yeah, my team junior year was national champion. We went undefeated. In senior year, we won CAF as well. We lost once in a tournament, so we were fifty-eight and one, which was great. Hung two banners, which was nice. So I went back to Fisher Gym and saw that, and that was something cool because I remember training when I was junior varsity and then as a sophomore on varsity and you you doing conditioning and all you're doing is looking at the banners from all the past champions in all sports and the goal was to always have your name up there you always want to leave a, a lasting legacy so I was fortunate enough to have some good guys around me myself and so yeah took advantage of that and won and as my brother said I had some scholarship opportunities and having my dad go to a school like Oklahoma that had a predominant football team. I kind of thought that would be something fun to do. And Ohio State was an option and they had a good football team, obviously. I went out there my freshman year and I ended up having knee surgery, meniscus, and I redshirted. And so I was doing rehab the whole time. But the football team won the national championship, which was kind of interesting. I, as a freshman, hosted a recruit on the 45 yard line against Michigan, which fifth-year seniors had not done. So some, somehow I did something right, was able to get that <laughs> ticket. And then the coach at SC was canned the spring of my freshman year, and an opportunity opened up, and I wanted to go back to SC. I kind of got a little homesick. I wasn't practicing, things like that. Just a perfect storm. But what was nice is that I, I got to spend a year on my own outside of Manhattan Beach, fitting for myself, meeting new people, learning about myself as a 19-year-old growing up. When I came back, I really appreciated where I'm from. I know a lot of people here don't leave, and you kind of get wrapped in this quote-unquote bubble effect. I still get called sometimes that I I don't leave the bubble of Manhattan Beach. (laughs) But I was able to do that at an earlier age with some influence that made me appreciate it more. And so then I transferred back, went to SC, and played four years there as captain for two of them and really enjoyed my time there. And then after college, moved back to Manhattan Beach and started work with my dad in 2007. And it's been great since then. We'll get into that. So, and Vince, you also played USC volleyball too, right? I did. And what's funny about USC, it wasn't our family roots until Gio went there. And, you know, if Gio stuck at Ohio State, you know, that probably might have influenced me to go to Ohio State. But him going to USC, I was able to go to his matches. It was, you know, only a 30, 35-minute drive from Nine Beach. So I was able to see how much fun he had at the school, the great people he met, the great connections he made afterwards. So that kind of influenced me and my sister to go there as well. Yeah, so I was recruited USC. I played for the head coach my senior year of high school. He has a club team. And so I went there, played volleyball there. My freshman year roommate actually was on the 2016 men's Olympic volleyball team. And so, you know, he was uh, six foot nine. And I'm only 5'10", so (laughs) that was pretty funny. But yeah, great time there. You know, let me interject here. My kids, they don't really talk that much about themselves. So Vince, first of all, was a high school first team All-American. And his club team won two national championships. My son Gio was a two-time All-CIF first team, as Vince also was an All-CIF. And club volleyball... You usually play your grade, which is 10th grade, 11th grade, and 12th grade. Gio is only one of two players ever to make the 18-year-old all-tournament, all-American team. 
And as a 17-year-old, playing in an 18 division, he was the MVP of the entire tournament. So very, 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 very proud of my kids. Proud athletic. dad. Yeah, I am a proud dad. You know, it was <laughs> a lot be. of fun for me. And I know they don't like talking about that. So it's just they know how proud I am of them. And it was great fun watching their matches and watching them play. And I think it really helped their character and helped their growth. Well, yeah, I mean, you were very supportive for us. You know, you were always there supporting us and... My eighth grade year, <laughs> 1998, I played down in Huntington. That was the best coaching opportunity for me to grow. I started playing volleyball in sixth grade, so I was two years in. We were 14, so we ended up winning the national championship. But well, the dedication that my dad had, as my brother was alluding to, the 405 freeway did not have a carpool lane. And we had practice Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. In our practice, of course, I was the only kid from the South Bay. Everyone else was from Orange County or Los Alamitos or down in, in that area. And he would drive me every time, didn't have my license. And there was times where it took us an hour and a half to drive 20 miles. And he never once said he couldn't do it because of work or he wasn't feeling well or whatever excuse it was. I was always there. I think I took it for granted because I didn't understand at that time of how special that was. And now that I just got married and, and look forward to having family, I, I hope to be able mm -hmm. to do that for my kids, like how you did it for all of us. That was great. That's awesome. So did you guys know during, before, during, after SC, you were going to go in, in, into real estate? When did that, that occur to you? Yeah. Okay. So way before that, when I was seventh grade, eighth grade, my dad would take me to school. We'd go to Manhattan Bread and Bagel, get a bagel before he drop us off in middle school, the old middle school, Manhattan Beach Intermediate. Now it's MBMS. And I would kind of wonder like what he did because I never saw him. I saw him in the morning and then I had school and practices for whatever sport it was. And then I'd see him for dinner and then I'd have homework and I'd be in bed. And so it wasn't until I think my sophomore year in high school that I kind of thought, well, God, I, I'd love to work in an area that I grew up in and that I didn't have to commute. And I enjoyed meeting people and feeling like I was pretty social and, and the opportunities were there. And my dad had been doing it for a couple decades and he had a pretty good name. And so I thought, God, oh, that'd be a great opportunity. And so I really focused on trying to achieve a, an athletic scholarship to go play, which I love to do, and then figured I would just do what was necessary to do real estate, like my dad, once I graduate college. Not everyone has that opportunity, one, and I don't know if everyone wants to work for their parents, either <laughs> a mother or a father, just because of you're with them all the time or the personalities don't mesh. But for me, yeah, sophomore year, I'd say, so 2000 is when I kind of thought, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I would totally do that. And Vince, I know you actually went to New York for a bit. I did. I flew the coop. <laughs> so I uh, graduated college 2011. I worked with my family for about 18 months afterwards. And I had an ex-girlfriend who had a job opportunity in New York City. And I was thinking, you know what? You know, I'm only 23 at the time. And I can always come back to this job, come back to Manhattan. I had my license didn't expire for another three or four years after that. So I had time. So, you know, let me take this opportunity to go to New York City. An amazing experience, probably one of the best decisions I've ever made to learn more about myself, to grow up outside of the area. Luckily, I had family that was in New Jersey. I was only 30 minutes away. But in New York, I worked on Wall Street. I was a stock trader for an equity proprietary trading firm. And so I was a 
day trader, swing trader for that. That was pretty amazing. I mean, very stressful, but learned a lot about the stock market, a lot about you know trader psychology. And what I took away from that the most was just risk reward. You know, really understanding what that means and how to balance it. Cool, good stuff. So let's go back to John Start in real estate. But before, what was your first job? My first job was I was a um, teacher, basketball coach, and phys ed teacher in Glendale. And then once I moved to Manhattan Beach, I realized I'm not driving to Glendale. I wound up getting a job at Culver City. What I really loved about it was that Culver City is a junior high, senior high, all in one physical plant. And so I taught in the junior high, which I really liked because junior high kids are fun. You can play basketball, baseball, you can play everything with them. Where in high school, you know, the guys are too cool for PE. And, <laughs> and then they're just the way it is. But being a varsity basketball coach, I got my feelings of working with older kids. And so I coached there for seven years. And in 1969, I, uh, you can only make so much money <laughs> as a teacher. And actually, I always joke with people and my first year teaching, I went back to New Jersey. Like I said all, before, all of my friends were truck drivers, longshoremen, blue-collar workers. And I told them, I said, I am making so much money, I can't spend it all. This is December 1966. So how much are you make? And I went, I'm clearing 100 a week. Now, in Manhattan Beach, I had a three-bedroom house, two blocks from the ocean with an ocean view, with two roommates, total rent, $150. The Buccaneer, the number one bar in the whole area, Tuesday and Friday. T-bone steak dinner, baked potato, salad, $1.95. Those were the days. Those were the days. Yeah, what? It gets, yeah. Even, it gets even better. Get back to those days. So I was dating one of the waitresses on Tuesday and <laughs> every night after 4 o'clock, 5, 4.30, something like that, there was happy hour. Cocktails, 50 cents, draft beer, 20. So like on a Friday, I have a steak dinner and I tell the waitress, my girlfriend, I said, listen, at, at a quarter to seven, just bring me five drinks. Whatever I'm drinking, just bring me five drinks. So I can eat and drink and party and have fun for the whole night for seven dollars. For seven bucks. Where was the Buccaneer? What? It's now the Bruco. Okay, the Bruco oh, was right there. Okay. The Bruco. And the Buccaneer was the place. <laughs> and there was actually a magazine called West. And they well, I don't want to go into that. <laughs> That's something I don't think I want. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to tell you what it said in the magazine. But anyhow, and so I opened up this pizza place called Zeppi's, little place in Manhattan Beach. It's still there now. It's a Manhattan Pizzeria. And I was making sandwiches, and I was introduced to a fellow from Pennsylvania, Perry Denisi, and he had this great pizza recipe. And so he started helping me make the pizza there, and. And you could get, when we first opened, two slices of pepperoni pizza and a Coke for 50 cents total. <laughs> and I made a profit, and it was unbelievable. And so from there, we expanded, and I wound up with 11 stores, nine of them on the beach, and then into the malls. And the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that was filmed in our Perry's Pizza that I owned in Sherman Oaks Galleria, which was really fun. And so the best part is that... Out of 120 employees, about 105 were my students. So all of the basketball team, the varsity, the JV, Frostoff, they all got first choices as to where they wanted to work. And then I, I would open up it to the other employees from the, I would have them all come into the gym, anyone who wanted to work. I had such a great workforce because I knew all these kids. 
and you know you know how they are. And in those days, there wasn't the computer registers there are now. You know, yeah. and you're dealing in a cash business, and I never once had ever had an issue with any kid stealing or anything like that. It was just great fun. And from there, I opened up a full service restaurant. I was very good friends with George Brett, the baseball player, and his family. Actually, his brother Bobby was the best man at my wedding. And we opened up a bar, a sports bar called C.J. Brett's. C was Chuck Lehman, J, obviously me, John Altamira, and then the four Brett brothers, John, Ken, Bobby, and George, and their dad, Jack, and a local builder named Andy Anastasi, who was at the time the biggest builder in town. And, and John was in construction, worked with Andy. And we opened this place, C.J. Brett's, and it was absolutely phenomenal. We were actually written up in Cosmo as the place to go to meet guys. <laughs> and every single sporting event, we had at least two or three of all of the networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, that would come and film our place. And the fact that George was in his heyday at the time and the Royals won the World Championship, it was just a great, fun place. I mean, it was, we held 240 people. We had all of the fights. Marvin Hagler fights and the, all of the big time fights were there. And it was just fun. It was just a great, a great place. A lot of people still remember that place. They got, I wish we had a sports bar like that. Where, where was it? Location? It's right now, it's Round Table Pizza. Oh, oh right there. Okay. And we were there from 1985 to 1992. And then I decided I wanted to get my real estate license. Restaurant business is really hard. I mean, take my word for it, guys. It's not easy. It's fun. It's fun when it's profitable, but it's, it's really, really hard. And I got my real estate license, and John Brett was doing some building, and I wound up getting a lead on a lot that was going to be for sale. I asked Johnny, I said, hey, John, why don't you and I buy this lot and we'll build two condos? And uh, we did that, and we made like $25,000 each. This was in 19... 88, and I went, wow, how great is that? <laughs> and so I, I called Paul Hennessy, who's a very good friend of mine, and I said, Paul, I'm going to make give you a great opportunity. I'm going to get out of the restaurant business. Why don't you come in? Chuck was leaving, and we called it PJ Bretts, Paul Hennessy, John, and the Bretts, and Paul ran it, and it was very successful a number of years, and then it got to the point where it was too much for everybody, so we decided to sell it. And then I got full-time into real estate. I started out at Northwest Realty. I was very fortunate that I was able to put together a very big deal on Torrance Boulevard and Prospect where we were building a trailer park. A friend of mine told me it was going to come up for sale, and I contacted the owner, and I discussed it with them. But I needed a, a bigger company, and so I wound up going to South Bay Brokers because they had a, a lot of good insurance programs that they included when you were a realtor there. And so we did an 87-unit condo project that was absolutely unbelievable. And this was in 1989, like, and the market was really strong. So I was at South Bay Brokers for about 27 years, somewhere around there. Every year, I think, other than one, I was either first, second, or third top producer at the office. And I love that office, great people, a lot of fun, good structure, very, very good structure, good training programs. Jack Gillespie, Jim Van Zanten ran a wonderful office. I mean, 
It was like a family. It really was. It was like a family, and they were very, very supportive of the agents and worked to, to do that. And then afterwards, I asked my daughter if I could take a little part of her clothing business that she started to have the boys and I use as a real estate office, and she agreed. We moved there. It's been how many years, guys? Six? No, no since 2010. 2010. Wow. It has been that long. I didn't realize it, it was that long. Yeah. That's right. yeah. And I decided, you know, I didn't want to have a company. I, I wanted to just do it with my family. And my nephew, Tony Altramura, has a property management company. So the three of us, Gio and Vince and Tony, actually started a company together. Tony is our broker. I love it. I have so many friends of mine that tell me how lucky I am. I work with my two sons every day. Every day. We go to lunch every day. We joke. We go to ball games. Uh, my daughter has the store next door. I have two granddaughters now, and I actually have a desk in my office where my granddaughters color. So I have a fun life. I mean, my birthday was Monday, and I turned 76. And I mean, there's no reason for me ever to retire. <laughs> I yeah, just have to <laughs> keep it going. <laughs> It's just a lot of fun. And like I said, I'm very blessed to have my family that I'm able to work with. And we work together. And that's, that's what's great. Well, Warren, what's funny is my dad, all those stories my dad's told you, my brother and I have heard them dozens and dozens and dozens of times. So all I need is just like the first, first couple of words. And then I, oh, for this one you before. can finish it. Yeah, yeah. I, I can finish the story. <laughs> but you know what, though? They doubt me. <laughs> for so example, <laughs> I would bet that whoever's listening to this podcast... I will ask you a question. What type of food did ponchos sell when they first opened? And I would tell my boys, they would go, Mexican food. I would no Chinese. And they go, no, it didn't. I go, it's Chinese food. And they would doubt me on these kind of stories. I said, why would I lie to you? It's Chinese food. Because my dad would say, well, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. (laughs) So that's resonated with me. So now, you know, I kind of think he's just telling a good story. We had this conversation and the next day, this woman walks in her office and asks us questions and her and my dad started talking she's like oh actually i'm actually from here back in the 60s and my dad's like, oh wait, wait hold on do you remember ponchos of course like what do they sell right away she said chinese food yeah like, no and both way. of my kids were like, their mouths me. almost dropped Dude, they couldn't believe <laughs> so, oh, I was my saying, God. yeah chinese food or ponchos you're right dad again yeah, yeah, again yeah. and so i tell them that's what they have to say from now on you're right dad <laughs> again <laughs> i love it so okay so when you guys got into the business geo and vince Tell me about the very beginnings and like, tell me like your first deal. How was, when you first got started, how, how was that? Did you tag along John? Did you, how did you get thrown right in? What was so it? I was the first to start because I'm almost six years old in Vince. I got in in 2007. I graduated in May. Dad said, you got a month till you start working. So I had a month to do what kids at right after college do and drink and party and go to the beach. And, and then I had to start a job. So I started, I had my license, started as my dad was my mentor. And so I would do a lot of the side work that my dad used to do that now he doesn't have to do, like like learn how to do the paperwork. I'd have to take classes on the contract and the disclosures. I would go to open houses and I would shadow and watch my dad do it until I felt like I was comfortable to kind of do it on my own and he would shadow me. 2007, the market was hot. I had no idea about anything. People would think that I knew everything because I was my dad's son, but I didn't know anything about Manhattan Beach. I knew about real estate and knew it passed the test and you know how to read a contract, things like that. My first deal 
was through a buddy of mine at SC, Fraternity Brothers' parents bought at 520 North Elena. And it was a front unit townhouse. And so I pretty much used my dad as the closer. And so I would tell my buddy, like, hey, he's looking to buy. And I said, here's something you, you should look at. My dad and I would do the research. And then my dad would talk to his parents to close the deal. And so then when we went into escrow, I would have to pretty much act as if I was the acting agent, even though it was under my dad. And, and then I was the co-representative representing the buyer. And so that's how I learned. And it wasn't until that I was thrown to the wolves when I had to do the seller disclosures for my dad's big client on the strand where I had to do everything. So I had to explain all the disclosures, give examples of what things meant, kind of break it down for the seller. And I'm nervous, I'm sweating bullets. This is a seven plus million dollar house and, and I'm 20, I think I'm 25 at the time. And they're older, successful people and I'm very novice into it. But my dad was there and I, I had a couple screw ups, but he kind of corrected me and got through it. And from there, it became a lot easier because the one thing that I've preached to like my brother or anyone that's asked me, hey, can I take a meeting with you? And how do you kind of get ahead? It's experience and being in this kind of area. And if you're really under 40 years old, if you don't have experience or you don't talk like you know what's going on, you're gonna get looked over. And I think, I don't think I actually would do real estate here. I would have done some other profession if I didn't work for my dad. Because at 20, I graduated, just turned 24. There was no way anyone was gonna spend a couple million bucks and have me represent them with zero experience. And what my dad hadn't mentioned is he didn't start real estate until he was 40. And he had had three or four different professions, had built up his clientele, and it was a lot easier for an adult to talk to an adult. And I wasn't an adult at 24. I was a kid right out of college with no experience. And so my job when I was five or six years in is to teach Vince the ropes and kind of have him shadow me. And then I basically did what my dad did to me, to him, until he felt comfortable. And now all three of us can handle any transaction by ourselves, which I think is obviously a testament to my dad to kind of show us this is the right way to do it when you are dealing with adults in the real world and you're dealing with high profile people who they're not CEOs, they're successful businessmen and women and they expect the same kind of treatment that they give out when you're trying to sell an asset like a property or give advice or there was things my dad would tell me like if you don't know, you tell him you don't know, you can't lie, it's too small of a town, you get caught one lie, it'll screw you up. Secondly know the market, understand that what you're saying, believe in what you're saying, but understand what you're saying. So there are hard facts and then there is a lot of subjective information based off of the information you're seeing. And that was something that I think that I've told everyone that has wanted to get into real estate, whether it's my friends or younger colleagues, I would literally preach them the exact same thing that my dad preached to me and it seemed to work. It can never get you in trouble because I think it's pretty common knowledge that people can understand if you know what you're talking about versus if you feel like you're just throwing information out there and you know there's really no assurance of what you're saying. What I love, and John, what, what are the two sayings, I'll probably screw them up, that are in your, on your desk? You have two that are the just plaques. profound. The, the Pro- first one is, my knowledge is my only source of income. 
And I really believe that, you know, in a business where you're a salesperson, no matter what business is, selling cars, you know, selling houses, selling arms, doesn't make any difference. You have to have knowledge and you have to know what you're talking about. And, and in our business, you have to know the market. Mm-hmm. As if you have a client and you, the client's a friend or if the client you don't, never met, you have to let them know that you know what you're talking about. That to me is critical. Yeah. And what I'm very proud of is both my boys, you tell them an address, they'll tell you about the property. You tell them a listing and they'll know about it. You ask them a question about what just recently sold and they'll know what it sold for, how it sold, what the amount it was that it sold, who sold it. And that is so important. And I think, I think they will continue to learn and develop and they will continue to be successful. And as a dad, speaking as the dad, I'm really proud of them. I'm proud of both of them because they helped me so much because I'm still active. You know, I, I still have a lot of friends that I deal with and I work with, and we do a lot of development in, in the area, Manhattan, Hermosa, Redondo, El Segundo. We continue to do development, and it's another part of their growth and maturation is, you know, someone builds a house. Well, you know, who's the framer? You know, who's the builder? Who did the plumbing? You know, you have to know all these things, and you're selling something. And it's shocking how many people don't, I mean, yeah. in real estate, that don't. And it's like any other sales business. There's 10% of the people do 80% of the business. And there's a reason why. And the reason is because, A, they're full-time. They're not part-time. They, they stay through good markets and bad markets, and they, they apply themselves. You know, that's the most important thing. You have to apply yourself. It's not a job where you work two or three hours and you're done. A lot of people think it's, oh, God, it's so easy. You sell a house, you make a lot of money. That's not true. Yeah. There's a lot of liabilities. No, There's liabilities. There's knowledge. You have to have a feel for things. And the difference between residential and commercial is everything in commercial is bottom line. It's a bottom line number. If it works financially, it works. Residential is emotional. You deal with divorces and how difficult it is. You know, people are getting divorced. They're selling the house. You, you have to have compassion. You have to have knowledge. You also have to have compassion. You have to understand what they're going through, the husband and the wife, you know, and then on the other end of buying it. So that's one of the things I think that I've been very happy with is that having a fairly good-sized family, four children, and I'm the youngest of five, that you have to explain that. You know, it's not just cut and dry. There's a lot of emotion involved, and you have to deal with that emotion. That's well said. So tell me about a mistake that you made, like in gaining all of your knowledge through your experience. Tell me about one okay. like, oh, man. Well, <laughs> Good question. this really wasn't a mistake, but it was <laughs> the first time I did an open house. It was on a property on Palm Avenue, very close to Rosecrans, maybe like six houses off of Rosecrans. And a couple came in and they're talking and everything, and the white is on the balcony and says to the husband, wow, you can hear the ocean from here. And I'm thinking, no, you can't. And I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to tell him, no, you can't. You know, it's a mistake. So I didn't say anything. It was the power plant. Oh. You know, the power plant goes vroom. And they thought it was the ocean. And I did not know what to say. And I've just kept my mouth shut. So at the time, I was at Northwest Realty, and I was actually a partner because I bought in with John Chuka and John Zarr. 
And I went back and I said to, to John Chuk, I said, well, this is what I did. He, go, he goes, well, what did you say? I said, and this says it. That's perfect. Don't say anything. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, what do you say? Yeah. And I think back about that and probably I should have said, no, that's not, that's not the ocean. That's the refinery. What if those people would have bought that house and thinking that it was the ocean that they were listening to and it was the actual power plant. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought about that and, that and I'm lucky that that happened to my first open house. And I understood then when I talked to John and he explained to me what I should have said and how I should have said it. And he was right. But that was one of the things that I, I will never forget. I will never forget that. And know that, hey, you know what? Think about it. Your home might be, the, it usually is, the most expensive investment you make. And I could have done something that really would have been a negative effect on those people. What about you guys? For me, when I was, this was, I think it was like fourth year in, fifth year in, right around the time that I felt confident of doing an open house without my dad or being able to talk to a potential client. And I remember I got a phone call and they wanted some information. They wanted to go see a property. And I got all excited thinking like, oh, I picked up a client. And so I started giving some information and I, my dad's taught me, and I, and I totally believe this, that you wanna work with people that wanna work with you. Yet in our business, there's a lot of disclosures like a buyer broker agreement. So I would sign you up and then I would be your client. Well, a lot of buyers don't like that because they, they get tied to one agent. How do they know that that agent knows what they're talking about? And a lot of buyers want information. This was kind of before the technology had really immersed itself in, my, in our business where you could find a lot of stuff online. And I remember giving a lot of information, proprietary information, stuff that I had learned, stuff that I picked up from my dad, from other agents that I thought were successful and bits and pieces. And I ended up not getting the client and they went somewhere else and bought something. And I, I was really mad at myself that I didn't kind of catch that, that these buyers were really just fishing for information, looking for stuff, and then we're gonna go on their own. And I wouldn't say it was more of a mistake than just, I didn't have enough experience to deal with it on my own where I could talk to someone, ask the specific questions I wanted to ask without directly bluntly saying, are you working with an agent? See their responses and then freestyle from there on how to determine if I think I have a chance to actually represent them or if I feel like they've got quote unquote 10 people working for them and they're picking up information, and then they'll try to do their best deal on their own. And I can't blame them for it. I mean, everyone's goal as a buyer is to get the best deal you can. But in our business, like we're commission-based only. And so our time is money. And so I, I would say that it's not really a mistake, but a, a real learning lesson based off the experience I didn't have that I feel like now I'm a lot more well-versed into mm -hmm. it. Looking for a personal stylist for your home? Check out Bow Concept. One of their design consultants can help you make the most out of your space. No request is too big or small for living, dining, sleeping, home office, and outdoor spaces. And check out their Southern California showrooms in Orange County and Costa Mesa and also in Los Angeles and La Brea. For more information, visit Bow Concept at bowconcept.com. Email info at bowconcept.la. For me, one mistakes I made when I first started Right after college, I was doing open houses with my dad in 2011. And I did an open house and I was just so unprepared on the market in terms of, first of all, the amenities of the house and then the, the surrounding comps. And I remember a guy came in there and was asking me about the house. 
Like, is that air conditioning? Like, ah, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think so. <laughs> and how much square feet is it? I don't know. It's, I think it's like 2,000. I found it was like 3,500. Making up comps, making up stuff all along. It was so bad. And that's when I first started. And I knew, you know, you have to be so prepared for an open house because you're going to get some savvy buyers who are going to grill you and ask you questions, everything. You want to be prepared. And follow up with that a couple years later when I became more seasoned, more confident, and more knowledgeable, I ended up picking up a client at an open house because he asked me about his property. Hey, what do you think? I have, I have a house in Manhattan. What do you think it's worth? Like, well, let's give me the address. And he gave me the address. And I said, well, I know that these three, four homes sold all around it. I know that you're going to get hit because of this location, because of this perception, all this other stuff. And that kind of really impressed him. So I ended up getting a listing appointment at his house and ended up selling it. And so I learned that even though not every open house, you might get one person in three hours, might get zero, always be prepared because you never know when you're going to get an opportunity for someone to come in. No, that's great. Again, knowledge. Yes. Awesome. That's it. Love it. You're right again, Dad. Right again, Dad. <laughs> Favorite city in the South Bay, and I'll be shocked if you guys don't all say the same city. Oh, for me, it's an obvious Manhattan Beach. Really? Uh, no, just joking. <laughs> Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach. Okay, we. I knew that. I've only lived. We well, Geo's only lived in Manhattan Beach, so right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if we, this was a travel channel, like tell. Tell the audience why this place is so unique and special. What, and according to you guys, live here, work here. Yeah, I think it's, here. I think it's unique because it's very hidden. Most people don't know about Manhattan Beach at all. Very clean city. It's a city where you can walk down the street and, and random people will just say, "Hey, how's it going? Hey, how are you doing?" It's waving hi. Great beaches, very clean, great restaurants, and a community that takes pride in itself. You know, there's no graffiti anywhere and if there is it's cleaned up within the next couple of days not a lot of trash anywhere not a lot of homeless people living here and so i think the city does a really good job of maintaining the overall cleanliness of the city what's the most overvalued neighborhood in manhattan beach right now the strand yeah strand strand yeah, yeah the strand is definitely such a unique animal it's you know it's like it's like sitting on a floor seat at a lake game Okay. Yeah. It really is. It's like sitting on a floor seat where you see things and you hear things that you don't think happen. And having lived on the Strand in Hermosa and in Manhattan, A, you better get a lot of beer because you're going to get friends you never knew you had. (laughs) Number two, you got to get used to people looking in your house. Yeah. I mean, literally, it's a fishbowl. Yeah. It's it's a fishbowl. Stopping fish bowl. in, putting it's their a, eyes yeah, in. They they look at they they want to look and photos. they want to see. You know who yeah. lives there? Who lives there? And, and they just want to see what it is. And the cost to live on the Strand, you think about one house behind it. The other Strand's a hundred feet. Most of the lots are hundred feet deep. Some are hundred and five. So you go from the Strand to Ocean, and the difference in cost is. Like 40%. Astronomical. Yeah. You know, I mean, just one house back. Yeah. Fine. You know? yeah. Exactly. You could have great views. You could have ocean views. You could look right down the sidewalk if you're on a corner. You're lucky to be on a corner. And it's a, a big difference. And, and the Strand is always a place where people strive to go to. You know, it's, it's amazing how many people that live in the beach area stay in the beach area. Like, for example, I've lived on a Strand. When I had children, I moved off to Strand moved to East Manhattan to the private road. And then I wanted to move back and we lived on a walk street, had two kids, and then we had the twins. And I think, yeah, it's hard to raise four kids in a 
and a vertical house, moved to the hills to tree section, then built another house in the tree section, then built a house and live in the hill section. So I've literally have lived in every single area of the beach. And that's not unusual. A lot of people who live in Manhattan have lived in different areas. You're single, you're gonna live down in the sand section. Yeah. You get married, you may still stay there with one kid, but then when you have a couple of kids, you want a yard. Well, patios are great, the walk streets are fabulous, but they're very, very expensive. Okay, so you move to maybe the tree section. Or East Manhattan. Or East Manhattan. East Manhattan is like, you know, when we first moved here, you know, I had friends that started a, he actually had t-shirts made. There is no life east of Manhattan. And that was a big deal. There was no life east of Manhattan. East it was the over to end it. And now East Manhattan is, is huge. I mean, there's yeah. so many beautiful big homes there, and you get big lots. Yeah. And then when you have children, you want to have a yard, but then you want to have access to the beach. You can walk down or drive down or ride your bicycles. Then after you are an empty nester, you move back to the beach. When I started in development and we were building townhomes, we built a lot of townhomes in Manhattan mostly on Highland, Manhattan Avenue. And one of the things I picked up really early, put elevators in, because we were getting a lot of people from PV, adults, elderly. Elderly, what is elderly now? I mean, yeah. you don't know what elderly is anymore. However, people that had big lots in PV with pools and yards and everything else, all they wanted was mobility. They wanted houses where, A, you had an elevator, and have to worry about it. They had their legs or hips or anything, or parents, elderly parents, mm -hmm. and they could walk to town or walk to the beach. Yeah. And that became a big, big deal, where you say, okay, fine, if you're building a three-story house, hopefully you have an elevator, you know, if you can. It's harder on a 30 by 90 to put elevators in on a 33 by 105, which are east-west. The north-south 30 by 90, it's hard to put an elevator because you only can build 1,900 square feet. But in the east-west, you can build 24 to 3,000 square feet. So it's easier to put the elevator in. And to me, that was a big deal. Here's a question. How many realtors are there per square foot in Manhattan Beach? One for every other person. <laughs> <laughs> Man, woman, and child. Woman, child. Yeah. <laughs> so let's... Wait, wait do, do you have to set on that? No. Oh. Yeah. But, but <laughs> what, 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 it, what the lead into that is, it's, there, there's a lot, obviously. It's probably the most competitive, hyper-competitive you know, area yes. in the South Bay in terms because everyone wants to sell because of prices and everything else. So is, is the competition, is it getting more cutthroat? Is it, well, how do you guys see it? Yes, I think. I was just telling Klein and my dad, we went to lunch last weekend, and I said, for our business, Every season is hard, Every if it's a good market or bad market. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I said, okay, well, so a down market, there's not as much business, right? And people aren't buying and selling. There's not a lot of confidence. Okay, that makes sense. Well, in a good market, same thing. He goes, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, your clients now think, well, real estate's easy and I can make a lot of money. So they get their license. Now they're not your client or friends of their of friends now have their license and so you've lost out business. So now you're not only competing with that, but you're competing with buyers who right now with the lack of supply are doing what they have to do to find the right property. And so it's making it harder for us agents, even in a great market to sustain. There's a lot of agents that will do one or two deals and you're like, okay, that's great. There's only a few agents that consistently do a ton of deals in any market, in any season. I will say a lot of that is luck. You need some luck that your client 
a property comes up that fits your client and you're able to win the bid if, if there's multiple buyers on it. Or your seller selling something, your client selling something that a lot of buyers are ready to buy that. So there's luck in that. There's definitely skill. But I would say, yeah, every market for us is tough. And I think it's another challenge. And Vince will add to this too. Now with technology pretty much streamlined in our business, yeah. that the buyers know more than a ton of agents. And a few agents can keep up with some of the best buyers because the information is out there. And so for us to sustain is how do we influence ourselves to them where they can't find it online? And really the only way is to be active on the ground, these networking groups, to know building codes, what you can build, certain things. Because if you can think outside the box there, you're going to more likely than not pick up a buyer that you probably wouldn't have if you just regurgitated the same thing that guy saw or that girl saw two days earlier on Zillow or Redfin. I think that is the challenge for our generation moving forward when technology is trying to change the game, how when my dad started. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, when my dad started in 87, it was saying there were, as you alluded to, there was one directory and then came out once a week to show all the properties that are active. So then it was saying, okay, well, I need a realtor just to find me a house. Well, now I can find a house, you know, instantaneously on my phone. So I need someone to help represent me, to help me walk me through this transaction because one, it's complicated, two, it's expensive, three, it's emotional need. I need some help here. And what Maggio alluded to earlier, yes, there's a lot of competition. There's no barriers to entry, get your license. It's very easy. You're dealing with your friends getting into the business, so you lose some clients there. And one way that I think ourselves separates ourselves from everyone else is that I think we have great access to market in- information. I think we are part of a lot of a great networking groups and we know a lot of off-market properties, specifically upcoming new construction that's coming on that we can help provide that with our clients that they cannot find that on online. So that's kind of a big, big yeah. thing. You know, one of the big things and one of the specifics in Manhattan and Hamosa is the fallacy of square footage. How much per square foot? And we get that a lot. Let's just focus right now on Manhattan. So per square foot on the Strand could be 2,000 a foot. Square footage in East Manhattan could be 800 a square foot. You can build the same house on the Strand and the same house in East Manhattan. Exact same house. One's 2,000. One could be 4,000. It's all the land. It's all the land. The land appreciates, the house depreciates. What people can't find online is, let's just say Manhattan Beach. Do you want to be on the north side where you don't have sun on the strand and the south side you do, or vice versa? The north side. The north side side is more valuable on a corner lot on the strand than the south side. If you have a yard, does the yard face south or does the yard face north? Do you want the sun in the yard? There's specifics for each block. Drive each, street or, or walk street. Drive street or walk street. Each block yeah. is different. Upsloping, downsloping. Upsloping, downsloping. Yeah. Yeah. Each block, yeah. each lot on each block is, is different. oversized lot? Is it yeah. substandard yeah. lot? Can your view be blocked? Is there yeah. only a single story? Protected. What's in front of you? Mm-hmm. What is that? Is that a uh, Is that a full lot where if it's east-west and you're looking for a view where the back can only go two stories? Or is it a half lot where they can go three stories? Other than Manhattan Village, where everything is homogenous. Mm-hmm. So one block, the other block, they're all the same. Everything in Manhattan Village is the, the same. The plans, yeah. 
in the city, every single lot is different, and the numbers are different. I mean, you think about a, a corner strand lot at its height. 17 was million. 16, 17 million. Wow. Inside lot, 13 million, 14 maybe. That's 3 million difference. What if you're close to one of the bathrooms? It could go down to nine. <laughs> what if you're close to refinery? Right. It could go down to eight. Yeah. So you can't just look at the house and say, okay, wow, this house is great. I'm going to buy this house. If you don't know the specifics of each block and each lot on the block. And yeah. that's a big deal. A huge... and, and that's something that, again, my knowledge is my only source of income. You have to have that knowledge. You know, most realtors, experienced realtors know that. A lot of people don't. And the technology can't tell you that. Right. Even with aerial views or whatever, they can't tell you that. There's, there's different specifics yeah. that they have. For my feelings, what has boomed Manhattan Beach was the article in Forbes magazine a few years ago when they said Manhattan Beach was the number one public school district in the country, the median price over 800000 You think about that. Yeah, I think that was like 2012, yeah. I think, that came that, out. Was it that long ago? Yeah, 2013. I mean, well, that, that started the, the uptrend. That started yeah, a that, tremendous that, upswing. That was, a, yeah. that was, that was, that was yeah. the catalyst that was. Yeah. Of, of what happened to Manhattan. I also think growing up in Manhattan... We went to Robinson was my preschool. Now it's it's a sought after elementary school. MBI was my middle school. Now it's MBMS and Maricosa is the high school. It's a lot easier. I feel like Vince and I have an advantage over other agents when I'm explaining to families trying to get their kids in the school system because I'm a product of it. And so I can talk to them on that level and there's a, a sense of comfort that I've seen with husbands and wives when they look at their kids and they look at me and my brother and we can talk to them about that and tell them that, yeah, back in the day, wherever you lived, you could only donate to that school. And now they change it to the whole Ed Foundation. So one grade school couldn't get more computers or, or, or better stuff because they were closer to the beach or was a wealthier population. And little things like that. And I think those little things is what separates us from some other agents. And it doesn't discount us being younger in our field. I mean, I've been in since 2007, so that's 12 years now. I still feel like I'm scratching the surface on knowing the ins and outs of real estate, the ins and outs of the town. I feel like there's always room for improvement. It's probably a reason why I'll never get out of real estate. I feel like if I, at 12 years, I knew everything, it'd get boring and there'd be no challenge and I'd feel like maybe I'd wanna do something else and this be a side gig. But I will say, as, as my dad mentioned, to sustain success as a real estate agent or broker in Manhattan or Hermosa, you can't take breaks. The market moves so quick. The buyers are moving super quick. Like you take a week off, you go on vacation for a couple of weeks, you could literally miss out and not see or, or be on the ground for a couple of comps. And the buyers are like, well, yeah, what about this one? And you don't know about it. And then you don't look like the superior that they're looking for. Yeah, I want to add right to that. I was a perfect example is when I first started, we would go on vacation. Let's say we missed four days. Oh, I'll just check the MLS, see what happened. Oh, interesting. That sold. Oh, that came out interesting. And the last couple of years, it's not the same as rather than still being actually in the city, seeing the sales, meaning you, you're going to the broker's opens, the public opens to see the actual homes. You're talking to other agents, hearing about the story behind each deal. That's unique. And, and you have to kind of be here to still be in the market, even though you might see what's happening online, it's still, you don't really feel, you still don't know that the same about it. 
and to what Gio alluded to earlier, and that's and that's kind of the, the main thing that helps us. Like you have to know every deal. You have to know the story behind 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 every deal as well. Let's talk about pricing, because basically since 2013, Manhattan Beach is up at least 50 percent in pricing. Wow. Since wow. 2013, and now we're we, the South Bay has finally hit the 20 million dollar mark in PV a couple times. The hill section hit it. Yeah. On the double lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Pacific. So now we're so what's changed, and this is what I want, and I want to hear some of the older stories on on pricing, but like it seems to me that the amount of wealth that has moved into this community is a different kind of wealth, and it's changed things. For better or worse, it seems like, you know, back in the day when you could get a, a house on the Strand for, for how, how, 50, how much? $50,000, which is insane to think, right? Mm-hmm. What's the cheapest lot on the Strand? A tear What would the cheapest lot be? Would it be like $3 million? Like five, no. six million. Yeah, something in South Hermosa. Yeah, South Hermosa. In Hermosa, the che- in Manhattan, the cheapest lot's been it's $9 El- million. Well, El Porto. El well, uh, yeah, other than El Porto. El Porto. Other than El Porto. So Six. if you bought $50,000 worth of Microsoft back then, would it be worth, you know? Yeah. What was better trade off? 50000 of Microsoft would, in the 70s would it, yeah, if you built versus a, you know Strand I mean? in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. It'd be That's interesting. It'd, It'd be, be real interesting. The answer is. First thing I, what I want to mention, I want to talk about, you mentioned something about the people moving into town with a lot of money. And my wife continues to tell me that even though I've lived here for 52 years, I'm not a native. So what I do want to say is, a lot of people moving into town with money are really great people. And sometimes a lot of uh, older people or longtime residents resent that. And I don't think they should. For example, we have a client that is a legitimate billionaire. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. He's generous. He's fun. We've got the dinner with him and his family. They're wonderful people. And too many people think that if you have money, you got to be a bad person. Or how'd you get that money? You know, and a lot of properties are selling for prices that were unheard of a few years. Less like what you said, six years, they've doubled. I mean, that, that's unbelievable. And a lot of people that are moving here that can afford those numbers. You know, you buy a house for $4 million, you're not getting a loan. $5 million, $8 million, $10 million, $15 million, $20 million, not getting a loan. You're paying cash. You buy a house for $20 million, your taxes are 20000 a month, every month, forever. And so you have better be able to, you have access to future monies. The point that I'm trying to make is that I think Manhattan Beach has, has improved for the better. I don't think it's gone down. There's always this nostalgia where it was so much better before. It's the same. It literally is the same. The town's the same. It's the cleanest town. It was clean before, it's clean now. When I first moved here, they were shutting down schools because there were no children. Now there's so many children that there's waiting lists to get into schools. Children make schools more vibrant. I was telling, actually talking to my sons, driving in the car, I said, you know what I love living here? Is there's so many young people. So me as a senior, I don't think of myself as a senior. You know, when you get older, you don't think you're getting older. You know, your mind doesn't just stop. You know, you don't think you're getting older. Maybe physically you can't do things you did when you were younger, but you don't think you're getting older. I love the fact that I drive in town and see all these young men and young women, and they're vibrant and they're fun. And the people who are moving into our area, people who are buying $8, 10000000 million, $20 million houses, they're not 80. 
they're 40. Yeah. You know, some are 30. You know, our advantage is our office in downtown. I see every day people of all different nationalities that speak so many different languages, not just Spanish, you know, Russian, German, French, Italian, Greek, visiting our town, you know, because we become not just a town that's popular in Los Angeles, it's world-renowned. Yeah. I mean, think about that. Think about 50 years ago, you wouldn't even think L.A. hated Manhattan. No one yeah. came here. A little yeah, beach town by the refinery. No, the Strand yeah. is an international destination. Yeah. It's international. It's, it's international. Beach, it's, it's, it definitely it's international. is. And the people who are moving in town, that are buying these very expensive homes, they're coming with families. You know, they love the schools. They contribute to the schools. You know, look at the Greenbergs. You know what the Greenbergs do? How much they invest in this town, you know, with the roundhouse and and with the charities that they help and everything. That's phenomenal. And for audience context, that's the owners of Skechers. Of Skechers, yeah, yes. Skechers, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, you, you look at that. That Those are things that that family does a tremendous amount for Manhattan Beach. And it's appreciated. A lot of people appreciate that. I look at it like... I have not run into anybody, me personally, in this town that I don't like. Let me put it like that. Yeah, that's okay. great. Well, and I think it's like people resist change, and change is change. You know, right. you can't stop it. It's inevitable. <laughs> yeah. It's change. Yeah. But what's interesting, we interviewed the founder of the agency, Mauricio Umansky, mm-hmm. last week, and we kind of asked him a similar question about, you know, what's changed in L.A., and what's, do you think, you know, this market is, you know... He made an interesting observation, and I think the West Side's more of an international stage, you know, yes, wholesale totally than, than South Bay. But he made an interesting comment that resonated with me, and it's like, everything has changed now. Like, this L.A., which is South Bay, West Side, it, it's on a global scale. It's on a new demand, and it, it, it's on its own demand curve, and it's blown up. I mean, it's this is now the place to, to come anywhere from you know, Saudi and any, mm-hmm. you know, Russia, like, you know, Asia, the money wants to come to these communities and it'll continue. So I think, you know, you look at comps, you look at this, you look at that. It's like, it's almost like it goes back to knowledge is because you can't compute these numbers in an Excel spreadsheet because people are going to pay what they perceive the value is. And what? that's not based on comps. And there's plenty of stories here that you know, if somebody wants it, they're going to get it. Yes. When we go for listing appointments, we got sellers that ask us, how are you marketing internationally? And I said, well, to be honest, the guy that's going to, or girl's going to sell your house is from here. Well, what do you mean? Well, normally we don't have the privacy or the, the land to compete with areas that you had just mentioned up in West Side, Hollywood Hills, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, Bel Air, the Flats. And so we get, when we're getting new money coming in here, it's mainly for the school system that they're in some sort of sector of finance. They're on odd hours of traffic. So going up to Century City, they're going early, earlier than the normal traffic flow and coming back earlier than the normal traffic flow. But their children go to school and their classmates, they all live in the same town and the wives hang out and, or the husbands hang out. And we don't get a lot of international buyers coming here for those first two reasons. And so it's unique that you guys had touched on that people are coming here, but the people that are buying is mainly around here or they're coming oh, yeah. from L.A. Mm. They might come from New York or Chicago or Florida, Arizona to escape weather 
and this is something that, that they can get a job transfer, but we're not seeing the kind of international buyer per se as compared to what you mentioned. It's them coming to just enjoy mm-hmm. town. One thing know? I want to add that I see that I notice that I think people like Manhattan versus the Western area in terms of equal wealth is people can go out here and you don't need to get dressed up. You don't need to wear a suit and tie to go out. You can be very casual. You know, people walk around in shorts and sandals that are worth tens of millions of dollars as opposed you don't see that in Beverly Hills or Bel Air area. And I think that that attributes to some of the wealthy that they like to come down here, that they don't need to feel like they need to show off their wealth. They feel like yeah. they can just kind blend of in. blend in with everyone else. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. I think that's a really big deal. And you know, on your point of, of international, to expand to what my son Gio said, there is international LA. LA is international. Manhattan Beach, when sellers want to know, well, are you going to market overseas? No. 99.9% of all the houses that sell in Manhattan Beach are from local agents. And it is That's online. Manhattan so anyone around the world can see it. Yeah. Without they, a doubt. And, and, they're local agents. Well, and, and, and as an owner of a media company, they're sourcing local media. Exactly. They're not looking at, you know, some Asian website or whatever. They're, they're like, what's the real estate game in town? Digs. Okay, yes. we're, let's look in Digs. It's like... Yes. The old adage, John, real estate is local. It's local. It's local. 100%. It'll never change. It's and everything's online, so you could be in Europe and see something in Manhattan Beach. You go on any of those realtor-related websites, you can find the same property. Yeah. Now, when I was speaking internationally, I was speaking more of a mindset shift. Like, yeah. that this is now, the sky's the limits in terms of what money could potentially be developed and pour in, into here. You look at it just downtown LA, commercial, all the big buildings, landmark you know, commercial being bought up by different groups. But anyway, we hit the market. We good on the market. Manhattan's got, needs more realtors, we decided. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, I think we definitely still agree <laughs> that the market's still strong. Yeah, Builders are still buying lots, which is indicative of a strong market because it's going to take 24 to 30 months for them to build and finish it out. Supply's still low. Yeah. Demand hasn't but, slowed. And there's, and there's just still a huge demand for new and construction. E- and even if the market tanks, because we're at the end of a cycle, mm-hmm. right? We're at 10 years. Okay, so logic's going to tell you, hey, here it comes. My my humble opinion is whatever happens nationwide or east of the 405 is nowhere near, like, if it's 10% correction, in Manhattan Beach terms, that's 3%. You guys mm-hmm. agree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we would say like, not a correction, but a new normal. So, and maybe you don't see the increase in property year to year from like 2012 to 2015 where people were literally buying and a year later selling and making money which is crazy we might see like okay you want to buy something in this area in this type of house this is what it's going to cost right now that happens and then the next one comes out it's a little bit higher and a little bit higher eventually it can't sustain like that but it might not go all the way down it might just say okay this is the new norm for for the strand if you want to buy a lot or in East Manhattan, you want to buy a brand new home, this is what it's going to cost. There might be a shifting of that and then a kind of a rebalance. And then you might see a little bit more inventory come out because we are, we've been so low, the whole decade has been slow supply that has not caught up to the demand. And I don't see it happening this year. And I, I really don't see it happening even in 2020. And I can't predict past that. And anyone tells you that's lying. But you could say in the now, or at least the, the short term, you're not going to see just this influx of supply to meet the demand that's out there so closing thoughts let's have some fun to close out the show shall we 
John, since we started with you, we'll, we will end or start the end with you. <laughs> um, tell us, our audience something about you that they would be surprised to hear. I'm an avid reader. I love suspense, detective, mystery. An old friend of mine, Ken Brett, used to play baseball, and he really got me involved in reading when actually my son was born. You know, I just um, watch TV all the time, and I love to read. I now have close to a thousand first edition books. I love reading. It's really stimulating. It's enjoyable. Favorite vacation spot? Hawaii. I love Hawaii. Which yeah. island? The Wahoo. I used to tell all my friends, you know, what? only an idiot buys a timeshare. So what did I do? I bought a timeshare. It's a different kind of timeshare. It's based on points. And it's with the Hilton Hawaiian Village. And we've been going there for, what, 15 years now? 16, God, 17? 20 plus. 20? Yeah, yeah 20 years. 20 and we loved to vacation there. You know, it was great. And, I, and the reason we liked there is because Geo could surf right out in front. You know, we all loved the water. It's close to the town. It's got great restaurants. And we always allowed the kids to bring their friends with them. So we always had groups of kids with us, you know, not just our children, but they had their friends with them so that my wife and I could also spend our time together. But I love it. And second is it would be the mountains. And the beauty about where we live, you don't like the climate? Go two hours, you change the climate. You want to go north, you want the snow. You want to go south, you want the desert. You can drive every place you want to go. Yep. I love it. Mm -hmm. Something unique about me, I guess I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, which is funny because <laughs> my dad watches it, but he doesn't know any of the characters. So he's like, Vince, listen, I need you to watch this with me. I, I don't understand it. So we'll watch it in every second. Wait, who's that guy? Wait, who's that? All right. Well, actually, that's, you know, Sir Beric Darren, and he's of the Brotherhood. And he's yeah, like, I'll tell the time out. Time spiel. Out. It's like 10 minutes. What spiel. did you just say? What does that mean? <laughs> so here's, so let me just interject real quick. I've never seen one episode of Game of Thrones. Oh, oh you got to start. Which Good I'm going you. to now. Now, I'm, now it's official. Like I can go, yeah. I'm, now I can binge watch. Yeah. Eight, eight in, seasons. Eight, eight seasons, seasons, right? Perfect. So don't spoil it, but go ahead. No, that's, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's a really funny show. I would say travel, where I would love to go next would be Tokyo, Japan. I think that would be amazing to do the culture, everything like that. I think that that's probably number one on my travel list. Cool. But Gio is going on his honeymoon. He's going to some pretty cool, cool places. You're the avid traveler, Gio. You're always out and about. Yeah, I have been traveling. Yeah, I've been lucky enough this decade. When I was playing volleyball in college, it was full-time year-round job. So you had, when you got into school, you start training, and then you have your season, and then the summer would come, and everyone's out of school, but you're training again. And so I didn't get the opportunity to travel, and I got into real estate, and I started to make a little bit of money, and my schedule was a little more flexible. I started to travel, went to go visit Vince's twin in Australia. So I got to go to Sydney when she was studying abroad. When Vince lived in New York, I went out to see him in New York, been to Florida to see his twin Alexa now that's there. But yeah, I've been pretty much around the world. I'm going to Africa in September, going to go on a safari and then go to the Seychelles. I've been there before. I, I really like Italy. I know it's kind of cliche, but the best place I like is New York City. I think New York City is the best city in the world. I really come to enjoy everything outside of Midtown and how you can get into different areas and really find anything you want. Now, difference is I don't live there, so I don't have to endure the weather. <laughs> and that's one thing that Vince has said, well, yeah, you, you live out there, you might change your mind. <laughs> but I guess something about me is I started to pick up golf going on six years now. I went to Riviera Country Club and watched one of the tournaments and I was like, oh yeah, it's beautiful. Like, 
I could do this. I was an athlete. Like it doesn't seem hard. Get out there and the ball doesn't move and you're shanking it and <laughs> spraying it around and it becomes really hard. But what I liked about it was that even the best players in the world or have ever played can never conquer the game. And so as an athlete, it's competitive, it's a challenge that every day could be different. And I think something like that is keeps me going of wanting to play. But I will say, if you ask me if it's summertime and it's 80 degrees, are you going to the beach or going to the course? I'm going to the beach. I'd rather be at the beach. I'd rather go in the water than to play golf. But golf has been kind of my new little vice. I enjoy it. I think it's a new, it's a new way to pick up friends, relationships, business opportunities, all with just playing a sport. And I, I, I enjoy the challenge. I think it's fun. I always took up golf when I was like 81. A lot of my friends were golfers, all good golfers. I figured, you know, I could play golf. And I started playing and broke 100. I learned why I shank and why I hooked the ball. And, but it's like Gio said, God, this, the ball just looks there and it says, hit me. You know, hit me straight <laughs> and you can't do it. And one of my good friends was the director of golf at the Rancho Las Palmas Marriott. So I golfed for free and had free lessons. There you go. In okay? Palm Springs. So one day we're playing and I hit seven straight balls in the lake. <laughs> Seven. Now, what the fuck? I threw my club in the lake. Well, that felt good. Threw all my clubs in the lake. Threw my bag in the lake. Took off my shoes. Threw my shoes in the lake. Took off my golf club. Threw my golf my uh, club. Golf club threw that in the lake. I said, fucking, I'm never playing again. <laughs> Did you throw yourself Ever. In yeah. Ever. Yeah. And so yeah. it was like, it's such a good it was story. like, That's I'm awesome. Done. Where was that I'm course? Do you, do you remember which course it's that was? In, uh, it's in the Palm Springs. Yeah, one of the courses. I, it, it, I was yeah. like, that's my favorite story to tell people. I, I just got into Bel Air to tell people that. And I'm like, oh, did like, how long have you been playing? Like, oh, wow, okay. Did, did, did your dad play or your parents? And I said, no. But I have a good story about that. <laughs> and like, as a it. golfer, it's, that's hilarious because everyone's been there at least once. Oh, yeah. Where Multiple you've times. gone to the point where it's, it's put you on your knees. And you're like, well, I don't even want to play Or you've anymore. been like, I don't want to play for a month. Or like, I need, I need a time off. Yeah. Even the best have gone to that. You're, I give you credit because you quit and you like did never play it again. Never played, and yeah. you're like, that was the best decision I ever made. I'm yeah. never, no, I'm it's happy. A, it's best a humbling, decision ever. It's a humbling but, game. But it's a humbling you know? game. And I'll ride with my friends. We'll go to a golf course and I'll ride the course. I'll have some beers, you know, and kind yeah. of hang out. I love, love looking at the course. Read a putt. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Read a putt. Yeah, right. <laughs> I could talk to you guys all the rest of the day. There's so much more to cover. But so in closing for me, I just got to say, it's John, I've been doing this real estate, you know, with Diggs for nine years. I've met everybody right i've met you know you are arguably the most liked and respected agents in the south bay so kudos to you and and for what you've done with bringing up your boys and it's a special moment you guys have earned all your success so congratulations and keep doing it thank, thank you. you thanks Warren. Yeah. thank you Appreciate a lot of fun that. thank yeah. you very much awesome guys thank you thanks And that wraps up this episode. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you found some value. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Find us on iTunes and your favorite podcast provider. Until next time.